The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Well, if you're new here, my name's Chase, and if this is your first or second Sunday, you might not know, we are in a series called Formed by Jesus, and typically at TBC, we teach through books of the Bible, but occasionally we'll do a topical series, and so we're talking through the spiritual disciplines, and we're talking about them not as a, a law, but as an opportunity like Zacchaeus and like Bartimaeus did to put ourselves on the path to encounter Jesus. So whether we're reading or studying or memorizing the scripture like Tim taught us about three weeks ago or whether we're praying and fasting or giving to the church like Dave has walked us through the last couple of weeks or today in solitude and in Sabbath in all these ways, really our hope is that we would encounter Jesus and be formed by him. And so as we look today, if you'd like to look, you can open your Bible to Genesis chapter one, end of Genesis chapter one, beginning of Genesis chapter two today. As you're turning there, I'd like for us just to think for just a second about where we get the concept of a day from. Where do we get the concept of a day from? Well, we get it in nature, and it's that the earth makes one revolution in a day. If you didn't know you were coming to science class today, I apologize. I'm gonna exhaust all of my knowledge in the next 30 seconds. We get the concept of a day from the earth going around one time. And then where do we get the concept of a month? Well, we get that from the moon uh, and its phases as it goes around the earth over a 27, 28-day period, roughly there. Not exactly our 30-day month, but it's, it's close. If you're a scientist and that offended you, that's not, I'm not trying to aim for precision. It's just the idea. Where do we get the concept of a year? Well, in a year... The sun revolves around the earth. We make one trip around the earth like Mark Rojas did this last year. But where do we get the concept of a week? See, the concept of a week we don't find in nature. We find in Genesis chapter 1. There are people that argue that really the week started with the Babylonians in the 6th century B.C., But if you do your history, the 6th century B.C. is part of the time when the Israelites who had been practicing a week for centuries were in exile in Babylon. And so God created the week. And in creating the Sabbath, the last day of the week, he blessed creation as the theater of his good work. It belongs to him. The whole world does. And even today, God upholds the world by his power. He guides it by his providence and he continues to give life and breath and everything else to his people and all living creatures. And the Sabbath is a reminder that God is guiding the universe and we are not. God is the foundation of our ability to rest in Jesus. He calls us to himself both in Sabbath and solitude. Sabbath and solitude are calls to be with Jesus, the person and place in whom we find our rest. So let's read Genesis 1.31 through 2.3, and we'll really focus most of our time on verse 3 today. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. 
Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. I want to read just a verse after Jesus had walked through a week and been through the Sabbath on the first day of the week. Mark one thirty five says, rising very early in the morning. While it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place and there he prayed. Jesus was in solitude with the Father. God, we come to you in Jesus' name and we pray, Lord, that as we look at these Two disciplines where some of these others come together. In solitude, we look in the Word, and in solitude, we pray, and in Sabbath, we do these same things so that we might encounter you. Help us to encounter you today, God, and help the rhythms of our life be opportunities for us to encounter you over and over and over again. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, what comes to your mind when you think about Sabbath and solitude? What is it that sticks out to you? Do you think about the law and that the Sabbath is a command to be followed? Is it something you just ignore altogether because you don't have time for? Or do you look at Sabbath and go, no, 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 I have Sabbath in Jesus, so I don't really like the work very much. There are lots of things you could do. Some people think of solitude and it seems like a dream that they could never have or Maybe they don't know what to do with it, or maybe you think of solitude and you're frightened of the places your mind and heart might go. Mark Rojas, who wrote the study that our small groups are going through on solitude and Sabbath, here's what he says in that study. He says, the first time I practiced silence and solitude and and Sabbath had a similar effect He said it was a challenge. I got away to a quiet place. I put my phone away and began to pray and it only took a moment for my brain to begin unloading a flurry of worries for the day. Hey, don't forget to put X on your to-do list. How will your family reach you if something happens at home and your phone is put away? There's no way you're gonna finish all the things you need to get done today. What's for lunch? The chatter continued, but it slowly subsided As I continued to refocus my mind and heart on being with God, and each time I noticed myself drifting toward distraction, I came to realize that this time in solitude really was a practice in trusting God. Trusting that he has and always will hold the world together. It's not my work or toil that makes the world go round. The universe existed long before I entered it. It will continue to exist Long after I leave, this is good news. I can be still and rest knowing all things are held together through the word. Sabbath and solitude, as we talk about them today, I want us to talk about three words. Two of those words come from Genesis chapter two, verse three, and the other is I think what Christ or what scripture is pointing us to throughout the Bible. Genesis 2, verse 3, God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. The first word I want us to think about is blessing. Sabbath is a blessing. It's a blessed day. It's rooted in creation. 
God looked at his work with joy. He looked at his work and he saw that it was good and it was very good and God rested. Now it would be a mistake for us to think that God rested because he was weary. He was not. He doesn't grow weary or tired. He never slumbers or sleeps. God blessed the Sabbath and called it holy when he rested from his good work. In part because he never slumbers or sleeps because we need to rest. Every time we lay our head on a pillow and go to sleep, it's a microcosm remembering we need rest and God does not. So God blessed this Sabbath that's rooted in creation and he intended for it to be a gift. Some people put it into a legalism and they say, well, you have to do it on this day and it's Friday night till Saturday night. Or some people would say, no, no, for Christians, it's Saturday night till Sunday night or for Sunday morning to Monday morning. And you gotta do it this way on this day or you're doing it wrong. And I'll, I'll tell you, if you work in a church, Sunday's probably not gonna be your Sabbath day. Uh, Don't ask me how I know, a friend told me. But there needs to be a day. Maybe it's half a day. But a moment where you still yourself before the Lord. Not because of legalism, but because we need rest and we find it in Christ and he waits to give it to us. It's not a law doesn't mean you're not a Christian if you don't do it, but throughout the history of Israel and the history of the church, God's people have practiced Sabbath and God's people have practiced solitude. I, I think Sabbath and solitude are both meant to be miracles and that once a week we come together in Christ and worn out souls get resurrected. They get renewed in Christ, it's a glimpse of heaven when we will fully and finally rest as the gathered people of God. Solitude is miraculous as well in that it's this glimpse of heaven where we come to Jesus for intimacy. And one day we will be like him because we will see him as he is. So we wanna come and see him and be on that path to encounter him. Sabbath and solitude are rooted in creation. They're also rooted in God's care for his people. God knows who he is. He knows what he's going to do. And he knows that his people are needy. Just four truths from scripture that remind us how much we need him and he does not need us. Number one, he he knows we are dust. As a father shows compassion on his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him for he knows our frame. He remembers we are dust. We need him and we need rest in him. Well, it's not just that he knows we are dust that would make Sabbath rooted in care, but it's also that God comes to us in love. He doesn't come to us in need. You you can work so hard that you really think the universe will stop if you don't stop working. Or you might have even heard a preacher say, God needs you. Well, he wants you, but he doesn't need you. In Psalm 50, this this passage where we hear that the cattle on a thousand hills belong to God, and God says, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you, for the world and all its fullness are mine. God's pantry is never empty, 
His fridge is always full. If he were hungry, he wouldn't tell you or me. He doesn't come to relationship with you or me for need. He comes out of love, and he always comes out of love. Our pantries get empty. Our stomachs get empty. We need. Our tank gets empty, and we need to rest, and we need to come to him. Number three, God is a God different than all the idols from of old. No one is heard or perceived by the ear. No, I have seen a God beside you who acts for those who wait for him. Now, we functionally live sometimes like he is a God who acts for those who serve him the best, who acts for those who always have it together, who acts for those who memorize the most scripture, who acts for those who fast the most. But this passage says that he's the God who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. We come on the path to wait to encounter him. And Sabbath and solitude give us that opportunity. And in Sabbath, we're reminded of this beauty as well, that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. He is at work on our behalf so we can rest. And this day is called blessed. The day is called blessed, but then it's also called holy. It's set apart. And it's set apart for God, but it's also set apart from God. The Sabbath is something God's people were meant to receive, and so is the gift of solitude. It was a gift before it was a law, and it's a gift now that Jesus has fulfilled the law. It's set apart for three things. Number one, that we would remember God as creator and redeemer. The Sabbath is set apart so that we would remember God as creator and redeemer. When the law is given, the Ten Commandments are given, keeping the Sabbath is one of those. And in Deuteronomy... The, the word God has for his people about Sabbath is recorded a little different in this second giving of the law. The reasoning for the Sabbath is given. Deuteronomy 5.12 says, Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do no work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or female servant or your ox or donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. You keep the Sabbath because you didn't rescue yourselves. Israel didn't save themselves from Egypt. They were saved by a mighty God so they could stop and rest even when they felt that they couldn't. And so we didn't save ourselves. We were redeemed, not from slavery in Egypt, but we were redeemed from the kingdom of darkness. We were redeemed from our own sinfulness. God sent his son Jesus to live and die and rise from the dead and to rescue us from our sins so we too can rest. 
It's a holy day set apart so that we would remember God is our creator and redeemer. It's also a holy day that's set apart in rest from work, but also in rest for work. We can think about the Sabbath as a rest at the end of the week, but it's also a rest because the beginning of a new week is coming. You can think about the Sabbath and it can sound kind of very Pollyannish in nature. I know you rest because there's brokenness still on the other side of this Sunday. There's brokenness waiting at work. It might be brokenness at home. It might be brokenness in your business. It might be brokenness in your neighborhood. It might be brokenness at your kid's school. Jesus in Mark 135, after the Sabbath, he rose very early while it was still dark and he went out to a desolate place and prayed. You might look at his schedule and go, he didn't have time to do that. But really, he didn't have time not to do that. If you were to read through Mark 1, you would see that Jesus starts preaching and he says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then he, he heals a leper and then he casts out demons. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. After he's done praying, he's going to go preach because that's what he came to do. He's going to heal another leper. He's going to heal a paralytic and forgive his sins. He's going to ask or answer questions people are asking, not least of which are questions about the Sabbath. The end of Mark chapter 2 and the beginning of Mark chapter 3, Jesus and his disciples are walking through grain fields on the Sabbath and they're, they're picking grain to eat. And the Pharisees see them and they say, you can't pick that grain, that's reaping on the Sabbath, you're sinning. Then they rub the grain in their hands, they fling it up, that's threshing. You can't do that on the Sabbath, you're sinning. And then they have the audacity to eat the grain. And the Pharisees rebuke them and Jesus says, hey, don't you, don't you remember David took his men and they went in and ate the showbread that's just for the priest on the Sabbath? That's in the temple. You, you're not rebuking David. And, in, and Luke, he just says, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. But in Mark, he says, hey, man wasn't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. This day is for the flourishing of the people of God. We're going to eat this grain. And then he goes into the synagogue. And there's a man there with a withered hand and they're watching to see what he's going to do. And Jesus says, is it lawful to do good or do evil on the Sabbath? Is it lawful to give life or to kill on the Sabbath? And he says to the man, stretch out your hand. And he does and his hand is healed. See, when he picks the grain, he's declaring he's Lord of the Sabbath. And when he heals this man, he's demonstrating He's Lord of the Sabbath. He is the one in whom we find our rest. It's, it can never be about a day or about the activity. It has to be about Him. Sabbath is made for man and it's made for us to be surrendered to God's purposes. It's both from work and then it's for work. Jesus went to this desolate place and prayed, and then he had work to do. There are three sorts of work I think Sabbath ought to prepare us for, and I think a couple of them will know, and one of them, in my opinion, 
most of us have just forgotten, but it's a beautiful thing that the church has, has done as we've done works in Christ. The first, very simply, would be works done together in Christ. That is, the works we do as the church. And, and as you, if you look, if you were to look at TBC's constitution, there are 10 things that we say we hope members would do, people who are in Christ, who are part of our body. And I've kind of summed those up in the three categories. And the first is that we would walk together in Christian love, that we would be maturing in Christ. The second is that that we would be growing in knowing God and serving his purposes, making disciples, making disciples in our homes, that we'd be parenting well, making disciples in our small groups, that we'd be seeing people know Jesus and grow in Jesus, making disciples in our community at large and all over the world for the glory of God. And then the third is that people established in faith who've been equipped for ministry, that we would give to God's purposes and carry out God's purposes in our city and all over the world to magnify Jesus as we make disciples. So we rest so that we can work in Christ together, but then we also rest so that we can actually do physical work. And I think that's work in the workplace and it's work at home. Our vocation, we rest on Sabbath so that we can do our work to the glory of God. Your job is your job so that you can magnify Jesus there by the witness you have, but also by the work that you do. Dorothy Sayers said this. She said, in nothing has the church so lost her hold on reality as in her failure to understand and respect the secular vocation. She has allowed work and religion to become separate departments and is astonished to find that as a result, the secular work of the world is turned purely to selfish and destructive ends. And that the greater part of the world's intelligent workers have become irreligious or at least uninterested in religion. God's intent is that at Baylor, Scott & White, at McLean, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, in our businesses, at restaurants, that our lives would be integrated, that we would have a fully integrated Christian life. And what Sayers is describing is a disintegrated life. What we do at church is separate from what we do at work. Well, I think the work we do at work, our vocation glorifies God, but I want to speak to parents and say the work that you do at home is also work that glorifies God. Now, we have a, a privilege as church leaders to join you in helping your kids know Jesus in Launchpad and at Overflow. But sometimes we'll see people who bring their kids to church. I'm bringing, to you, bringing them to you so you can help them know Jesus. But what they see in your life is a life disinterested in the things of God. And what happens is we want to be friends more than we want to be parents. Now, I love my kids. They got great personalities, in my opinion. I'm not biased at all. I love the friendliness we have, but, but my role, my wife's role that she's just tremendous at is that we are shepherding them to know God and it's work that we're called to do. And, and one of the most significant things that moms and dads do when we practice Sabbath or solitude is get renewed for that journey of work. Well, there's a third way that I think we ought to 
work for the glory of God in the world. And it's the way I think the church used to do really well that we don't always do well now. And I'll tell you, it came to my mind most clearly a couple of weeks ago. I took my son, Nate, to England and he's 19, he's doing a gap year at Cape and Ray Bible School. And so we spent a couple of days in London and London is a city where you can pay $40 to ride a Ferris wheel or you can see the Rosetta Stone for free. So we went to museums. And while we're in a museum called the Victoria and Albert Museum, we came upon a sculpture with some tapestries, one that was a garment, one that was just a piece of art right behind it. And I was struck by it. You can see it here. You've got Jesus on a donkey. And then you've got these religious leader garments and this tapestry behind it. And I was struck by this reality that six and seven and 800 years ago, the art of the church was beautiful, but the heart of the church really wasn't. Leaders were oppressing people. Indulgences indulgences were being sold. A works-based salvation was being proclaimed. The art of the church was beautiful, but the heart of the church was not. Now, you you think about today or really the last half of the 20th century, and while the church has by no means been perfect, we saw some really amazing things happen through the people of God in the last half of the 20th century. We saw care for the poor in ways that maybe we hadn't seen as much previously. We saw civil rights come to be rooted in this reality that all people, regardless of race or creed, are made in the image of God. We saw mass evangelism so that more people came to know Christ in North America, South America, Central and East Africa than had for generations before. And then we saw a missionary movement really starting in 1974 that for the past almost 50 years has seen churches planted among the unreached in incredible and beautiful ways. So there are ways that the heart of the church is beautiful right now But if we're honest, most of the time the art of the church is really not. Our music sometimes lags behind the world. Sometimes our literature is a bit on the cheesy side. Don't get me started on movies. I'll offend some of you. They're they're just not good usually, right? Now, if you got to pick one, I'd say we want the heart of the church over and above the art of the church. But I I think to reach a post-Christian world that both the heart of the church and the art of the church, music, literature, performance art and fine art, done for the glory of God, really ought to be beautiful because it will demonstrate what our words declare and you might have a kid that's just amazing at the arts and you might be thinking they can't make any money doing that. And I would just say they might be able to magnify Jesus incredibly doing that. The art of the church and the heart of the church can be simultaneously beautiful. What does that have to do with solitude and Sabbath? Well, 700 years ago, the world was moving at a much slower pace. There was much less busyness. And people did pause to meditate. And what they created was sometimes beautiful. It's set apart to remember our creator and redeemer of the day and the concept of solitude. They're set apart from work and for work and then they are set apart 
as gifts so that we might worship and magnify Jesus. They're set apart as holy so that we might magnify Jesus. Now, you, you might ask, well, how does Sabbath and solitude really magnify Jesus? You're there and you're really just not doing much at all. But if John Piper is right, when, when he says, he's been saying for about 40 years, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. If he's right about that, and I think he's right about that, then Sabbath and solitude are very holy concepts. And Piper asked the question, he says, let's think of, of God like a mountain stream and if you wanted to glorify or magnify or confess the worth and value of a mountain stream, what would you do? Would you go to HEB and would you buy the purest water you could buy at HEB, put it in a backpack, climb to the source of the mountain stream and dump the water out in the mountain stream? Would that glorify the mountain stream as your water just washed away? Or would you go to that stream and gaze upon its beauty and be amazed at how glorious it is and then drink deeply of it and be satisfied? See, Piper thinks and I think the second is a better option that when we stop to encounter Jesus, the psalmist says like a weaned child goes to his mother. When we stop to encounter Jesus, we're not coming for milk, we're coming for intimacy. We're coming to unite with the Christ who has brought us to life, though we were dead in sin. He's saved us and is transforming us and he's most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him so hear me, some of you might be rolling slow at it and you need to get to work, right? Work is a really good thing. But for some of you, the most holy thing you might do is it might just be that you walk outside and take a deep breath in and realize that the content of that gas that you take in over and over and over wasn't created by you and it's not sustained by you and it's put together in such a unique way that it keeps you and me breathing and alive day after day after day and a benevolent and good and gentle and kind God gives us life and breath and everything else so we can stop and remember and give thanks and instead we kind of live like Martha you remember Martha and Mary Jesus Jesus comes into their town he comes to their house and Martha gets to work but Martha's not working for the glory of God she's working out of a sense of duty out of doing what's right wrong and Mary knows Jesus is there and she just sits down she's sitting at his feet and Martha consumed with herself. She wants to be seen. Hey, Jesus, don't you care? She's not even helping me. And Jesus says, no, she's, she's chosen the good part. She's chosen the good part. I used to know this person that would say, I just serve all the time. I'm a Martha. <laughs> she's not the good guy in that story. But here's, here's the truth. I really think this. I think if... Jesus had come into their house and Martha sat down with him and sits with him and Mary and just gets up quietly, goes, hey, Jesus is here, I'm gonna make us a meal. Puts it together, 
makes a meal, brings it out, and they enjoy it. I think we never hear that story. It's not that serving people is a bad thing. Tim's going to talk to us about service and hospitality just in a couple of weeks. I think it doesn't even make the Gospels. We don't hear, but, but she thought her works were more important than intimacy with Jesus. And if any of us think that, man, we're missing the mark. Solitude and Sabbath are set apart as rhythms of life, time to be with the Lord, time to be with God's people, time to rest in the Lord. You might do what the Rojases do, and you can read about it in the study where they set aside about a day or a half day for rest, and at night they light a candle when they eat to remember Jesus is the light of the world. It might be that it's a half day for you. It might be Friday night to Saturday evening. It might be Saturday evening to Sunday morning. But it's meant to be a rhythm of your life. And here's the truth. Every life has some sort of rhythm. People whose lives are filled with no God at all have a rhythm to them. Some people's lives are filled with a rhythm of work until you're sick. Some people... Their lives are a rhythm of not really much work at all and laziness, so life's always a struggle. For some, there's a rhythm of hurry. For some, there's a rhythm of not doing enough. But there's also this rhythm that says, I know I'm living in a world of brokenness, and I'm going to come back to a world of brokenness. And so I'm going to step away to the one who is broken for us, who is making all things new. I'm going to come to be with Jesus so that what's dead in me can be resurrected for work in this broken world. I said there were three words I wanted us to think about. The first was blessed, the second is holy, and the third is the object of our rest, the one who we find rest in. It's Jesus. Jesus is the Sabbath rest of the people of God. Now, you might hear that and go, right, he's my rest. I don't need to rest. I can just keep going and going. No, that's called workaholism. That's not holy either. Sabbath and solitude are physical manifestations of the spiritual reality that in Jesus we find our rest. Jesus is the one who said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You might be worn out from trying religion. You might be worn out from your job at work. You might be worn out from what you do at home. You might be worn out from striving to try to please God on your own. And Jesus, his call that went out then goes out now. Come to me. Come to me. And when we come to Jesus for rest in solitude and in Sabbath, We're living to recognize in faith what will one day be our reality in sight. I I love how Augustine said this, and we'll close with his words. Augustine said, sight shall displace faith. One day our trust that Jesus is the satisfier of our souls. Well, we won't have to trust. We'll see it with our eyes. We'll see him as he is. Sight will displace faith and hope Hope will be swallowed up in that perfect bliss to which we shall come. What we hope for will be a reality greater than we can imagine. But then Augustine says, love, on the other hand, is going to wax greater 
when these others fail. For if we love by faith that which is yet we see not, how much more shall we love it when we begin to see and solitude and Sabbath are acts of love for our God. While we labor for His glory and while we wait to see Him as He is. And when we see Him, we're going to find that He is worthy of all the labor and all the rest. God, we praise You and we thank You that we can come to Jesus for rest. Thank you for his life, for his death, for his resurrection. God, we're thankful that you love us, not because you need us, but because you have chosen to. God, may we be so overwhelmed by your love that we find rest in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.